up on the shores of Lake Katichuit, a very calm lake nearby here in Framingham. And about four years ago, I went to Hawaii and went to the ocean there. And the waves were on the beach where I went were huge. And there were riptides. And in swimming there, I felt that the waters, the energies there, were too powerful and too dangerous for me to play in the water, to swim in. And it's taken me several years of going to the baby beaches there and gradually working up to the, um, what most people there consider still baby waves. Uh, because these huge waves just seem so powerful and so dangerous. And I've learned to have a great respect Some of the waves can be 20 or 30 feet high. They're awesome. And exploring one's own mind, coming to a retreat and having nothing to do but to look at one's own mind moment after moment can be likened to all those years, the last four or five years that I've learned to explore the waters of the Pacific. The powerful waves, and especially the riptides, are like the forces of Mara, our shadow side, the dark energies within us. It takes a lot of practice to learn to navigate the territory of one's own mind without getting overpowered or drowning within this darkness that we all have within us. So we need to learn to respect the immensity of the waves, the power of this darkness, while we're developing the strength and the light of mind that allows us to see the darkness clearly and to learn that we can work with it without drowning, that we all have this potential. Traditionally, there are 10 armies of Mara And tonight, I'll be talking about just one, the second army of Mara. I'd like to describe all ten, just so that you know what they are. The first is sense pleasures. The second is discontent or dissatisfaction. The third is hunger and thirst. The fourth is craving. The fifth is sloth and torpor. The sixth is fear. The seventh is doubt. And the eighth, ninth, and tenth are all different aspects of conceit. There was a woman in Australia who asked me 
why I wanted to talk so much about dark, darkness or Mara, because I, I give a series of talks on Mara during the retreat. And I thought about it because um, it's important to understand why I do talk so much about Mara. And there's a quote from Carl Jung that I thought expresses um, the importance of it. He said that to confront a person with their own shadow is to show them their own light. If we don't learn to uncover and to work with the darkness within us, there's really no hope of finding this light, of finding an inner security or home. So most of us are afraid of these dark energies within us, and we keep them them hidden. So even talking about it and hearing about it can help us find the courage to work with these energies that we all share. Mara appears in the early Buddhist texts as a deity, as the opponent of liberation, the enemy of awakening. And literally, Mara means the killer or the destroyer. Historically, before the Buddha's enlightenment, Mara is said to have appeared to him as demons and seducers to try to sway him from finding the truth, from keeping on with the search. And after his enlightenment, the Buddha said, Listen, bhikkhus, I will tell you the weapon that will completely destroy the army of Mara. And this is none other than the seven factors of enlightenment. The seven factors of enlightenment are the causative factors of being an awake being, of being enlightened. And this is a mind that's filled with light. So these seven factors are very important in regard to the armies of Mara, and you'll probably hear a lot about these seven factors during this course. Briefly, these are mindfulness, which you've already heard a lot about, investigation, energy, rapture, calm, concentration, and equanimity. And these factors of being awake bring life to us. They enable us to discover the light and life within us and to see more and more clearly the truth of life. So Mara is that which disguises the truth. Mara is that which is false. And most of us in our day-to-day lives are usually on automatic pilot. We live believing in the appearance of things. We're living in illusion on the surface. So Mara 
can be seen as our perception, which is usually being fooled over and over again by appearances. It's unlit. It's dark. It's veiled by the false. Samara could be seen as being under the spell of darkness. It's a kind of death while living, being unalive, unawake. And this is why Mara is considered the destroyer, because it keeps us from being alive and awake. Mara is also known traditionally as the incarnation of ignorance. And this ignorance, being caught in believing in our foggy perceptions, is what destroys our life because it covers the truth. When we come on a retreat, we're allowing the foggy layers hidden in our own darkness to emerge. And when we can respect and recognize and accept this darkness, this, these newly emerging layers make, make space for us to discover an inner security, a place where Mara can't abide. It's called the deathless, the stillness of the heart. And this can happen. Discovering this stillness of heart can happen when we learn that this darkness is workable. This place called the deathless is our true home. And this is where the false appearances of desire and hatred and ignorance can't take hold. And it's a deep place of inner security that is mostly what motivates us to be here, trying to find that place of inner security. This is a quote from Han Shan, the cold mountain poet. Despite the obstacles, I pursued the great monk, the misty mountains a million layers high. He pointed the road back home, one round moon, lantern of the sky. So we're in this journey of finding our own home, our inner home. This lantern of the sky. In 1984, I first sat with Upandita, Sayada Upandita, at IMS for three months. And when I initially started to have interviews with him, what I was struck by was that he didn't seem to care about Michelle. He didn't care about my mask. 
my disguise. He didn't seem to appreciate all the ways that I had developed to become likable and acceptable or unlikable. And I began to see that when I walked in the room, all he seemed to see was an imbalance in the factors of enlightenment or one of the many armies of Mara at play. (laughs) And so I could see that what he was trying to figure out was which factor of enlightenment to balance or which army of Mara to club away. (laughs) And when I saw him this year, I sat again for five weeks with Upandita in Arizona. I saw this much more clearly this time around. And this time, I had more of an appreciation of what a compassionate gift this was. To have someone not be seduced by my mask, but to only care about helping me safely arrive home. It's very powerful. and sometimes very difficult. This meditation that we're doing here can sometimes seem like a battle between the forces of Mara and the forces of being awake. Yet we're all in the process of home-going, and Vipassana enables us to develop a strong mind which helps guide us home. A weak mind on meeting with an object moment by moment usually will trigger greed, hatred, or delusion, which is Mara at play. And a strong mind which means an inner home or an inner security allows us to live in this world, to live among all the objects of the senses, and not be harmed, and to not drown. So this strong mind can help us overcome these darker energies within us, and that's why it's such a safe and incomparable home. So happiness in this context, happiness in Vipassana, is having a strong mind. Even if we just experience that one moment in a sitting, you start to taste what it's like not to be perpetually drowning. When we come on a retreat, especially for three months, we're leaving our safe, secure nests. And since our stay here is quite long, usually at some point, one will find that one will have some difficulties with the environment, with the lack of comfort in respect to any of one's needs or necessities. So that maybe it's too hot, 
unlikely. <laughs> Usually, <laughs> it's too cold, but we hope the heat will get turned on. Or maybe it's too noisy or too quiet. Or maybe there's not enough chai. <laughs> or maybe it's too long a schedule. Or maybe it's not long enough. Maybe we don't have enough privacy. Or maybe it's too private. Or maybe we have to go to bed too late or get up too early. Somehow or another, at some point, we usually find something that causes us to find fault with what's happening here, with our stay here, with our environment. And this is discontent. This is the second army of Mara. And traditionally, this dissatisfaction is defined as discontent with one's own practice. Compared with other cultures on this planet, we live in a very affluent society. And mostly, mostly, people's survival survival needs are met. A lot of us have been conditioned with the American dream, and it's very aptly called a dream that acquiring a certain amount of material wealth is going to bring about happiness, that if we just get enough money and we have enough comfort, that we'll be happy. This is the dream that we were all fed on, a lot of us anyway. And this great dream of finding a deep contentment from material wealth has very painfully not been met in this culture. Here on retreat, dissatisfaction initially takes the form of the routine seems too boring, or the environment will usually seem too harsh. And then as you go along, it kind of changes into a feeling that one's practice just isn't good enough. And this is when the discontent really starts getting difficult. And this discontent with our practice usually leads to irritation with our life and with ourselves. This is a quote from Trungpa Rinpoche. We are not talking about philosophy, but we are talking about how on earth, how in the name of heaven and earth, we can actually become decent human beings without having to entertain ourselves from here to the next corner. The constant search for immediate entertainment is a big problem. What can I do next? How can I save myself from boredom? 
you hear us saying that we're supposed to take one moment at a time or one breath at a time, one step at a time, but it hardly ever seems good enough. If only I had no more back pain, then I would be happy. Or if only I had more concentration. Or if only my zafu was softer. Or if only there was more heat. Or if only I didn't have a cold. There's always that if, if only I could feel more vibrations in my big toe. <laughs> or whatever. How much of our experience is acceptable to us? And usually when we start sitting, it's quite revealing because we find that about 98% of our experience isn't acceptable to us. That's the beginning of seeing clearly. And so there's the boredom or the nothing's happening space or the sleepiness and the restlessness and the hot daggers and the knees, or the feeling hopeless, or the doubt, or the anger. And then there's the concentrated spaces and the high energy times, the effortless, easy, breezy times. What starts to develop is the willingness to be with this whole range of experience that mostly we don't find acceptable at first. It's that willingness to be with whatever's happening because it's the resistance to what's happening that's always the suffering. If you look at anything that's happening, it's always the resistance, whether it's doubt or fear or sadness, or boredom. And when we, let, when we can see the resistance and work with it, the actual boredom is usually no problem. The sadness is no problem. And that's why it's the willingness to be with it that's so important, even to be with the resistance. Because mostly at the beginning of a retreat, and even during the retreat, we're working with a lot of resistance. Otherwise, we'd be in the present moment. This is a story of something that happened last fall when I went to visit a friend during the three-month course in Western Massachusetts. And I like it a lot because it really (laughs) describes how our mind works. It was toward the end of the course, it was winter, and it was the first snow. And this friend of mine had just had a baby, and it was morning, and she woke up. She went downstairs to get a cup of tea. And she went to get water in the kettle, and there was a mouse in the sink. And it was kind of just the feeling that it was going to be one of those bad days. (laughs) 
And she went, oh, there's a mouse in the sink. Oh, no. And she was all upset. And her husband came into the kitchen. Um, and she was all upset that the mouse was there. And then the, she went to get a container to catch the mouse. She went to the sink, and the mouse went down the pipe. It went down the drain. And so um, their house is a very old house, and their pipes always freeze when it gets cold. And her husband was afraid that the pipes were going to freeze. And they got into this big argument, and it <laughs> kept getting worse and worse. And they were talking about calling the plumber. And um, after about a huge five-minute argument, I'm not kidding. The mouse came back up, and Maggie went, Oh, boy, the mouse is in the sink. <laughs> and it's such a simple story. I mean, it's so stupid. The mouse went, a mouse is in the sink. It went down the drain and it came back. But just the range of happiness, you know, oh, no, to, oh, boy, <laughs> just over a mouse. It was... A really wonderful morning. <laughs> and this is our happiness. Our happiness is so fragile. It's so re- based on such relativity. And you can see this so much in your day-to-day experience here. So say you have two seconds or two minutes or two hours of being mindful. Usually you feel really happy and everything's going great, and you love the Dhamma, and you love yourself, and you love the practice, and then you start writing letters to your parents and your friends that you want to turn on to the Dhamma. and It's just great, and we get attached. And then, say there's no mindfulness for two days, or ten days, or two minutes, and it's terrible. We hate ourselves. And we hate the practice, and usually we have a lot of doubt about our own ability to practice or in the practice itself. And we can't believe we came here, especially for three months. I mean, <laughs> it was just 10 days, but three months. And we count the seconds, never mind the hours or the days, but we actually think of how many minutes we have left in the course. <laughs> I bet there's a lot (laughs) in three months, a lot of minutes to go. (laughs) And we feel horrible if we've ever talked to anybody about the practice. (laughs) And then one hour later, we have another couple of moments of mindfulness, and we're ecstatic. It's amazing. So this nearly continuous dissatisfaction occurs because our happiness is dependent on what's happening. And so we're hardly ever satisfied because actually we hardly ever like what's happening. One thing that I find amazing about us human beings is that we're usually nearly constantly judging each moment as not being good enough. It's incredible. And because we do this a lot, 
this discontent leads to two poles, or can lead to two poles. There's a pole of hating oneself or hating others. And because of this swinging back and forth between hating oneself or hating others, this leads to more and more discontent and less and less well-being. First, hating yourself or judging yourself. This usually starts with the discontent and then we'll go from sadness to despair or to self-pity or depression. And the kind of thoughts that will go through the mind at this point are very simply, I hate myself, or I'm the worst yogi here, or I'm failing, or I'm no good. This proves I'm a terrible person. Whatever you know the thoughts. Or the other pole will be that one starts to judge others or hate others. And the thoughts that might go through the mind at that point are, what's that person doing here anyway? That person sneezes too much. That person swallows too much. That you might be not quite an, quite quiet enough for that one, or that person moves too much, that person walks too fast, whatever. When there's dissatisfaction present, our minds can make a problem out of anything. to mention briefly that this idea of dissatisfaction can be exacerbated by having models of how we should be. And it's important to remember, especially at the beginning of a retreat, that when you hear the instructions to be constantly mindful every moment throughout the day, that if you can't do it, which we can't at the beginning of a retreat, that one can get very down in oneself and struggle a lot. And to keep in mind that it's, you know, to, go, to come from a very busy lifestyle or even a relaxed lifestyle, to come here, it's like putting on the brakes. <laughs> And someone in my group said, said, you can put on the brakes and then just go through the windshield if you're not careful. Um, <laughs> so please keep in mind that a lot of discontent will come about if you have a model that you should be mindful moment to moment. That's an instruction that's being put out. But there are times when you just won't be able to do that and that that's okay that you do the best you can, and to trust that you'll do the best you can. So having a model of how you should be, and when you're not working up to that model in any way, 
is one way that this dissatisfaction can really eat away at us if we're not careful. When dissatisfaction is present also, we tend to miss the subtlety and the beauty of life. So we tend to miss the beauty or or miracle of taking one step or of hearing the sound of a bird singing or appreciating a sunset. There's a woman that I heard about that was in a hospital in New York and a friend of mine who was a monk for a long time in Asia came back to New York and was invited to visit this woman in the hospital. She'd been in an iron lung for 20 years. She'd never moved from the bed And one tends to have an appreciation of what that would mean when you come to do a retreat. Some glimpse of what it would mean not to move for 20 years. (laughs) And this monk was invited to try to um, kind of encourage this woman to keep going. And when he walked in and he heard the story, he just burst into tears. And he asked her, how how can you do this? How could you do this? How can you live like this? And she answered that every once in a while, a nurse will come into the room and sometimes a nurse will open a window and a breeze will come in the wind come through the window and will touch my cheek and that breeze will tell me all i need to know and this is so utterly simple and so joyous the subtlety and appreciation. And this is what we're developing in this practice, this kind of subtlety of perception. And as we practice, we can start to learn not to swing so much from our happiness coming from constantly needing pleasure or depression coming from things being difficult, that there's a deeper kind of happiness than this monkey mind or swinging mind. So we start to learn about appreciation. And so the armies of Mara always have an opposite. So dissatisfaction has an opposite, which is appreciation and contentment.
One thing that you may find, and this usually doesn't hit right away, but for some people it does, is that there's a a deeper kind of satisfaction that can arise with ourselves or with our practice through the years. And this is a longer-range view of dissatisfaction. The more we become mindful, the more we become aware of how much we're being unmindful. It's like... um, There are times when it can seem almost impossible because we get a glimpse of how unawake we really are. And this this can seem at times like a very hard practice. And it's important to understand what it is that can sustain us. What is it that nourishes us through the times when we feel like it can be impossible, because it can feel like that at times. It's not always going to feel this way, but at times it will. And there were two little stories I wanted to mention, if there's time, that I I think helps us to see what it is that can sustain us. Stephen and I went to South Africa last summer to teach. And when we, when I first did some interviews with people, it was amazing. The first three or four interviews, the people just started crying the minute they walked in and sat down. And these people were people who were working very directly with black people in in that culture. They were working very hard to equalize the relationships of person to person rather than person over person. And it seems as if the people who were suffering the most openly The suffering was visible, it wasn't hidden, with those working the closest with the difficulty. And it's the same with our practice. The more you're up against moment to moment your stuff, the more your suffering is going to be visible. And that's good. That's why we're here. So the more mindful we are, often we become aware of how hard seeing through Mara really is. Our suffering becomes more visible. That's all. At the end of our stay in South Africa, we went up to a private nature reserve in Botswana. And there was a couple that ran this private reserve that I found very inspiring. And this is a longer story, but just to make it very brief, these people were again working very directly with very difficult situation. 
there was amazing amount of poaching being done on their land. They were constantly trying to save the animals from being killed. And they already, the territory of the elephant and zebra and impala, endless amounts of animals, their territories and very small now. And then in their relationships with the black people, trying to teach them ways in which they might find a way of income. It was very difficult and keeping an equal kind of relationship in a culture that is oppressive. And we were all sitting by the fire the last night we were there, and they asked us some questions about our stay, but the conversation changed to um, their frustration. And we talked about it, and this couple started arguing, and the woman had to leave the fire. And she felt so frustrated because she saw no results in her work. And in talking with her husband, I began to see what it was that nourished him or sustained him through the feeling of frustration that he saw no results. He really didn't feel like he saw any results. And what I saw was that he had first a very deep commitment to the present moment. He had a very deep commitment to working with his respect for the animals there, for keeping the environment protected, for equalizing his relationships with the black people. It was a very moment-to-moment respect. And the other thing that I saw was that he said that he never felt that he'd ever see the results of his work in this lifetime. It's pretty amazing to put out all that energy day by day, and just they put in 14-hour days, 15-hour days. And he never expected to see results. He thought it would take three or four hundred years for the relation, for the culture, for the black and white culture to really start to understand each other. Our practice is a bit similar. (laughs) And I'm not trying to be grim. (laughs) But it takes an enormous amount of patience with ourselves, because if you consider just one day, there's a lot of aches and pains and restlessness and ups and downs. And it takes patience to do this. We're not going to be superhuman overnight. And we get these wonderful glimpses of the breeze touching our cheek. And then we have to go through a lot more difficulty, and then we get another glimpse again. And these glimpses are what can sustain us. Our minds are incredibly formidable opponents. Otherwise, there'd be much more happiness or well-being in this world. And so when we're working so hard, and you're all working really hard, we can be easily frustrated. Our suffering 
that becomes visible on retreat can be transformed into a very profound compassion for ourselves and others on this path of developing understanding. And it's such a great thing that you're all doing, that we're all doing, developing this compassion and deepening our understanding. And sometimes this is very easy to forget in the day-to-day aches and pains and desires and fears and doubts. This is a quote from a woman named Ruth Sanford who went with Carl Rogers over to South Africa last summer. This was after she was there, she wrote this. A compassionate person seeing a butterfly struggling to free itself from a cocoon and wanting to help very gently loosened the filaments to form an opening. The butterfly was freed, emerged from the cocoon and fluttered about but could not fly. What the compassionate person did not know was that only through the birth struggle can the wings grow strong enough for flight. Its shortened life was spent on the ground. It never knew freedom. It never really lived. Part of our birth struggle, our spiritual birth struggle, is opening to Mara. opening to this darkness within us, our cocoon. And this birth struggle also involves developing understanding. It's developing strong wings, a strong mind. And it takes a lot of hard work for this understanding to enter our hearts. to just briefly mention that our suffering can disappear when it enters the field of understanding. I like the image of a cocoon very much, or the whole uh, metamorphosis of caterpillar to cocoon to butterfly. As a child, I went through a lot of physical abuse and sexual abuse. And it was, a very, it was when I was very young, and I had no memories of this until I sat with Upandita in 1984. 
And what happened is that the memories or experiences went into a kind of protective cocoon. It's called in psychology a repression, a non-remembering. And it's hard to believe this. I want to talk more about this in other talks, but when I first had the memories, I was so deeply involved in this process of just being with heat and coolness and vibrations and tingling that I had the memories totally from that perspective, totally from the perspective of not me or you or this person or that person, but very much just pressure, heat, um, a lot of pain. But it was around, just from the perspective of anatta, or no I, no solid entity, either in the other person or for me. It was so powerful to have those, those memories from that perspective. It sustained me through a lot of the difficult emotions that have emerged since then. And at first, the emotions that emerged were very intolerable. And I slowly learned to feel the sensations and the feelings and not drown. It took a long time to learn how to do that, but I slowly, slowly learned to do that and to let them go. And it was very healing, very freeing to have the perspective of just being with the elements, just being with earth, air, fire, and water. When we see life as it truly is, when we have a clear vision of how things are, this deep delight in the truth is what nourishes us. And so we must respect the darkness It's important to respect our cocoon. It serves a purpose. My cocoon served as a protection from too much pain. We can slowly grow out of whatever cocoon we have built. We all have a cocoon. And we learn to grow out of our cocoon in our own way and in our own time. The stronger our minds are, the more inner security we have, and then the more we can emerge from our cocoon. This is what enables us to do that. We can have a deepening commitment to be mindful without the struggle of hating ourselves or hating others if we do miss a lot of the show or when it does get difficult. We can learn to appreciate the times when we're awake and the difficult times. This appreciation is what brings more and more joy. And this joy is the gateway to enlightenment. This joy creates lightness and interest rather than boredom. And this joy 
brings deep inner satisfaction. It helps us turn our difficulties into our best teachers. This appreciation is appreciation, this appreciating the seasons of life, that we each have our own seasons. We have our awake sittings and our sleepy sittings. We have our bad back years. We have our high energy times and our low energy times, our summer and our winter. Mara is the play of these opposites of birth and death, of female and male, of cold and hot, of loss and gain, or of pleasure and pain. There is a true home within that isn't affected by these play of opposites. One can develop an awareness that can illuminate this dance, this play of appearances within our lives. And a buoyancy develops where we don't drown in it. The Buddha invited all of us to see for ourselves. He said that no one can see who does not kindle a light of their own. So may you light up Mara. I'd like to end with a quote, an Ojibwe quote. Song of the Thunders, sometimes I go about in pity for myself, and all the while a great wind is carrying me across the sky. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.